Welcome to Let Me Introduce Myself. My name is Sekou Lalo. And I'm Maxine Paul. And we are pulling back the layers of black male humanity to look at what's true, what's authentic, what's deep. Co-creating space for black men to explore their humanity, blackness, maleness, and everything in between to fully introduce themselves. Khalil Green, a highly educated brother, self-proclaimed as the hood, Theo Huxtable is committed to his community and wrestles with how to meet the needs of his people. Fresh off the death of George Floyd and weeks into the coronavirus pandemic, Khalil is engaging creative ways to express his anger. Come listen as this brother talks about the contradictions of fighting for liberation when we are complicit in reinforcing the problem. It's let me introduce myself and we are pulling back the layers of black manhood. Stay tuned. So Khalil, we want to start the discussion and you know, it's called let me introduce myself. When we uncover the deeper layers of black men to really mm-hmm. let them introduce themselves fully. So in that sense, we want to introduce yourself. My name is Khalil Green. I'm originally from Arlington, Texas. 32 years old. I currently live in Washington, D.C. Been here for almost, it'll be 14 years in the fall. Went to uh, Howard University in my undergrad and was beginning my master's in social work. Currently, I'm in my third year doctoral program at Morgan State University in social work. And I mean, honestly, like the best way to describe me is like, I would say that I am a a nuanced thinker when it comes to all things, but particularly the issues around the Black experience. I care about us, and when I say us, I'm you know saying Black folks. I care about us tremendously because I feel like a lot of times we focus on how we can seek care and validation from others in our society as opposed to really just focusing on caring for ourselves. And I'm dedicating my work towards that. That's what it's about for me. So I mean, that's who I am in, in a nutshell. But like just as much as that, then I also have an element of ratchetness as well. <laughs> I think the best I think the best way to describe me is I've coined myself as like I'm the hood Theo Huxtable. That is a perfect essence of who I am. I would be considered like maybe upper or middle class, but I grew up in both environments. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's that's clear. That's good stuff. I wonder what cockroach would be since you the <laughs> Theo Huxtable. He had to kick it up or not. Good to hear about your your locale. I'm a Baltimore guy. Okay. Grew up in Baltimore. That's a good starting point. So my next question for you around that, just to go a step deeper, is, and there's a lot to this answer possibly, but how are you feeling today? Like, how do you really feel? You can express that in as much detail as you want. I feel, with everything that's going on, I feel... I have anger for George Floyd, his family, and for how his death is impacting our people. How I personally feel about it, I have really a level of apathy towards our killings. And when I say apathy, I'm saying it in the context of it happens so much. How many times do I have to say, oh, that, that's so sad? And it is very sad. It's horrific. Now it's about, like, what are we going to do in action? We keep asking, you know, government, different entities to step in and they're not going to. So what are we going to do that's going to make them listen? And I am not. And let me be clear, as far as using our anger in action, I'm not talking about deadly force. I think we should be using our anger into action is 
we need to control how we spend our dollar. Black people need to boycott how they spend their dollar into this society. That's going to get them to pay attention. So like my anger is like, uh, my, I, want, I want my anger to reflect my action. That's where the stage I'm at with this. I had a brother that drove me to yoga today, asked me about how I felt similar to you. And I was very slow to answer in reference. And I told him, I said, you know what? He's like, oh, so you're not angry? I said, it's not that I'm not angry. It's just like, I chose to do something different with my anger. I chose to write about it so that it could be scribed accordingly for this time, but then also serve, serve as, a, as a, a guide how others can process this experience and what to look for. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, that's what I think is important right now is we need to make them hurt in their pockets. Make them hurt in their pockets. That's good. It's going to take some discipline, too. Well, see. That's the work. That's the work. That is the work. Yeah. That is the work. That is the biggest thing. But it's like, is your fasting worth another man's life? Another woman's life? And we can, we can make it really simple. It's like, you talk about how hard it is, but like, if it, save, if it saves a brother's life, if it saves your mother's life or your sister, or how hard is it then? And the thing about it is, then we have to ask the real question, well, if it's so hard for me, then do I really want this system to end? Because I'm, I'm a part of it. I'm a part of it. That's the, that's the part Black people really need to come to grips with. You're a part of the system. That's good. The reason why Black people have struggled to move forward is because we don't want to admit to ourselves that we're just as part of the system as the people who oppress us. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So when I tell people I'm concerned about us and us only, is because I do not expect anybody else to help us. We have to do it. But in order to do it, we have to first recognize where are we a part of the problem? If you're coming from a standpoint of every action that you made is only circumstantial to your victimhood, then you can't really make no upward mobility. If your life is only meaningful, if you have certain comforts in it, if you only care about your brunches, why would they stop killing George Floyd? Why would they stop killing any of us? What are you willing to sacrifice? You can't sacrifice a meal. What makes you think we're going to be able to get a life? You know, we got all these churches, primarily most, most people will go on the assumption that black people are Christian or at least practice a monotheistic uh, religion. So we're going to assume Christianity and to be fair, maybe Islam, those primary two, particularly to the Christian community. It's like we have all these churches that do these fasts. What spiritual growth collectively as a community do, do they really result into? Like, I'm just telling you, I'm in the business. We got to start calling each other out. That's what this is about. As a black man, for me, if we can't call each other out, we ain't going to get better. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I would be satisfied if some people just said, you know, what, I don't, I'm not ready for that. I don't want that smoke. I can respect that more than we talk about it. We're not even at a point where we're honest with ourselves. Like, I want a revolution, but I'm not comfortable with the cost of it. We would be farther if we, just, if we could just say that. We like the idea of it. It's cute. We wear it on our T-shirts. We post it on our Instagrams. But the sacrifices, think about it. We come from people who understood sacrifice and mean that, hey, I'm going to have to get up early in the morning and walk to work because I need to make these men and women who are socially controlling us that I mean business and my dollar matters because my humanity matters. Look how far we've fallen. We can't give up brunches. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to come back to that because I got something directly just with Atlanta to talk about that. And I know the same thing's happening in D.C. First, I want to ask you, how is your relationship with other black men and then with black people that are not men? My relationship with black men is I have close relationships with black men. And I always have, I think, throughout my whole life. I think I think the first close relationship that I had with a black man, you know, I was fortunate um, to have with my father. 
So I, I recognize the privilege of that and that has played a role. I've had a best friend for 20 years. He's a black man. My brother, he's a black man. And I've had working relationships, you know, with, with black men throughout my life. Some of them have not always been good, I mean, obviously, but that's the human experience. But I, I've had really good relationships, just as well as I've had troubled ones. With black women, I say the same thing. I think, to be fair, I think there may have been a little bit more adversity in my relationship with black women by my thought process or action, and sometimes theirs. But then there's, there's been a lot of love, too. Again, I was fortunate enough to have my mother, but I have a sister. And I've had women that I've dated that I've, I cared about, or I've had girls that happen to be friends that I cared about. And then I've had people where it, it hasn't been. I think outside of those situations with Black men and Black women that have been longstanding or been for a season, that those are obviously impactful. I think the ones that we don't talk about enough are the ones that we interact in passing. I think those are very um, impactful. They can be because it's those in the moments where you get to see how people view you and they know nothing about you. Because that's a part of it too. You know, an encouraging word from a brother or sister that just sees you going going along your day means a whole lot just as much as disenchanting word from a brother or sister that knows nothing about you. It says a lot, especially when you talk about it in the aspect of what a community is. So for me, it's like, I, I view both, both of them, all of them are important because, because they serve different purposes. That's good that you, I, I hear you about the community piece. And so I'm going to go kind of in that direction. Okay. Along the lines of community, what roles do you play in your life? Why? And how do those roles impact who you are, i.e. your identity? I think the roles I play in the Black community, I think I've always been the, the orator or scribe. I think I've, again, as, as I'm stating my profession, it's a, a significant part of my identity. I've always believed in connecting people to get, getting where they go. So social work was a natural, it was a natural transition. And so in the, in an aspect of the community, I always wanted to be able to help people in our community get to where they wanted to go. So I recognize the importance of that, you know, the idea of service. But then also being able to speak about what's going on in our environment too, and being able to translate that and communicate that to people as well who may not necessarily see it the same way. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy being a professor at Morgan, to be able to converse and dialogue with emerging young, young minds. To me, it's a big part of that community work. So for me, that's, that I would say that's been my role. I've been an active participant in various different things. I've done community work as far as volunteering with certain organizations, one in my fraternity, some just during the holiday season. Obviously work, extended work in being a social worker. And then also like as far as entertainment, of course, I've taken part of that too. So to me, it's, it's been all that. I feel like I'm a person in the community that I'm gonna talk to you, but I'm gonna listen to you too. Like, I'm going to be real with you, you, you know, since we talk about manhood, I'm the type of guy that'll go to a strip club and want to get a dance from a stripper, but I want to hear a story, too. That's the type of man I am. That's real. Yeah. That get no realer than that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I, I want to understand, is there an experience that you struggle with in your life, and especially around your identity, and have you gotten past it, or how do you negotiate it today? Man, the biggest thing that I struggle with my identity is like following a path of manhood that is sincere and real to me and not and, and is not always affected by the internalized voices that I've heard what I'm expected to be as a man. That's what I battle with 
every day. I struggle with the idea of feeling adequate as a man. And I think a lot of brothers struggle with that. We, we, and it's a lot of social pressure. And it's funny because it's not that I didn't have my father, but certain things that happen in relation to my father and I's relationship, as well as like what happened when my father had to leave the house, you know, when he, you know, separated from my mom and how my interaction with my mother changed, had every piece to deal with that. Not to mention what I was experiencing outside of the household from other black people. And then also what the media shows about ourselves. And so trying to be a better or a respectable version of myself for myself and others, and it's, it's an interesting thing because we come from a culture where for the longest, the idea of, of a man being righteous in some ways, in certain contexts, is not really respected. It's respected once we all get to a certain age, but even then, the, the after effects of what that is, is not fully embraced. So for me, that's, that's the struggle. It's like the idea of fi- trying to f- always find and fine tune my authentic self and then find my place and where I'll be respected for that. Let me dig a little bit deeper because you said, I'm really curious about this, when your father left, mm-hmm. your relationship with your mother changed. Yeah. It sounds like your role changed with, well, you, at least in your mind and how you felt, you felt like your role changed from whatever it was to, to whatever it evolved into? It, it changed in the sense that, you know, unfortunately my mom, she projected the hurt feelings that she had towards my father onto me. And the thing about it is, I'm, and I'm gonna say this to be very clear, my vision and my prayer is that black women watch this someday just as much as the brothers watch this. And I'm gonna say this specifically now. I say to the women who happen to have sons and their, their fathers are no longer, at least immediately in the house, not saying they're not present, but not immediately in the house. Be careful how you talk about your child's father, especially if he's a man, especially if he's a man in front of him. He is not your emotional pincushion. And sisters need to hear that, clearly. Appreciate that. No problem. Appreciate that, which kind of segues into the next question, which is what or who impacted who you are, influenced who you are today? Did I, both my parents did. I have both their traits in certain ways. I'll say this, the idea of wanting to please multiple parties, it waned on me. It waned on me. And so, I mean, both both of them have impacted me, uh, just as much as the outside environment uh, impacted me, you know, the community growing up. You know, I come, like I said, I come from, I tell people who are not familiar with Texas that I'm from Dallas. You know, I was born in Dallas. I tell them that because that's the quickest frame of reference, but Arlington is the city that's in between Fort Worth and Dallas. And we're a metroplex, like just equivalent, like the DMV, the same. So like growing up in that space, going to a certain type of church, you know, that's Baptist, usually being taught certain ways how to operate, how to be. And coming from a household that was splitting away from each other, but you had two different type of educated people that were raising you, you know, despite that, and then seeing that environment, it was very impactful, very impactful, very impactful. And I get that. Now, so <laughs> I'll tell you about, like, I love music. So I, you know, as we're doing this interview, we kind of like taking it on different chords mm-hmm. as we're going through it, you know? So I want to understand, what are you passionate about? Like something that you were very passionate about. Man, I love, since you brought up music, I love hip hop. I love it in the sense that like, so Netflix has this show called Hip Hop Evolution. And it's with this rapper that's from Canada. It's a brother. But like, 
you know, he said on this quest to understand like the pivotal people as well as the movements of hip hop and how it's evolved to where it is today. And so like, I'm like, I love hip hop so much that I like watching that show when I'm doing work. I watch it over. If, if I really love something, I'll watch it over, 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 like a kid, over and over again to the point where, I mean, obviously I'm internalizing, but I start to see, I start to make the connections that most people wouldn't necessarily see at first glance. Because you're at that point, you're studying it. You're really, you're like, you're, you're really studying it. Like, for example, Method Man's motivation for him rapping, it stems from the trauma that he experienced growing up as a kid and wanted to be validated by his father, but other men as well. He stated in that documentary that I only write for my guys in that farewell in the apartment. Fuck everybody else. That's his drive and his passion. And that as a social worker, but also as a social worker that loves hip hop, I'm able to hear that and say, oh, okay. Or like when Q-Tip says, I'll give you another example. When Q-Tip says, you know, when we started sampling certain artists, and jazz artists, you can hear they lived in a time where they weren't allowed. And he's talking about black men now. They weren't allowed to express themselves. But when they play, you can hear the ancestors and then them express so much in their music. And you can hear the pain. So for me, that's that is what it's about. It's like this has been an art form that's been able to be an extension of us telling about who we are and what we experience in a very authentic way. So like first and foremost is gonna be hip hop. I have one like follow-up because I understand that fully. I've been looking at, there's this thing on the Vice does with Noisy, and they've been mm -hmm. looking at hip hop across the world mm -hmm. and how it's like popped up in different communities. Mm -hmm. Have you ever checked that out and like seen other communities across I, the world? I, or I, have, the I have looked at other communities. I've heard about the community in France, in Japan. I've heard about it obviously in, in London or just in, uh, New, uh, not New England, but in Britain, just in general. I obviously know about it and heard about some artists in Africa over the years. And some of it is overlap. Just in my own bias, I think like, for example, with Asian folks, it's really not a matter of the oppression that they experience internally with themselves. It's more so about the technicality and the art form itself. They're very polished, technical, methodical oriented people. So their love for it is to me, yes, it's them to be able to, to express themselves, in their own circumstance, but it's not coming from a place of trauma automatically. Not that they don't experience trauma, it's just not coming from that place, which is okay. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? Thank God it, is, it doesn't have to be that. But for us, it was. So yeah, like when I hear rappers from Britain, they talking street shit like we talk. It's just a, a British accent. So I've dabbled a bit. It sounds like you want to use hip hop as a part of how you, in some ways, you utilize hip hop in the way you teach and communicate. And I'm sure with the generation that you, generations that you're dealing with, that that's really a, a great hook for people in. Do you have any vision around that outside of the institutions that you work for now, just in terms of independently, where you want to kind of utilize that in ways that are generative that can kind of build and strengthen and inform our community, our pain? Sure. So I want to use hip hop to teach certain concepts, just generally. Hip hop and our pop culture, just generally. Because the reality is that, that is a, that's a relatable genre of music and is the most popular genre of music in the world. The biggest idea that I have around it is writing around like certain social issues that we encounter and then reference how hip hop is talked about. I've used, for example, 
gonna tell you how I've used hip hop in the classroom, real simple way. So again, I'm at Morgan and I've gotten a chance to teach the BSW students. And so the best way I explain what it is to be a social worker to them is I said, essentially social workers are the plug. Now plug is a, is a street terminology that's used in conjunction with hip hop to describe a person who is connected to the main source that traffics the drugs from one place to another. A social worker serves, serves that same capacity in the context of we provide resources to people who are trying to access a certain resources from people they wouldn't normally have access to. So it's, it's, it's about integrating what people already know about uh, their community and then using, using that information to have them look at it more expansively than they would before and also differently. That's what, for me, that's what hip hop is about. For example, we're gonna talk about scholarship. That's the lane I'm in, right? So, for example, in the context of, when we're talking about writing, uh, scholarly. For, for students, I would teach them, I, I would teach them and say, when a hip hop artist samples, or if they, if they reference a different song, or a phrase from another song or artist, that's a citation. That is a citation. Just like I, if, if I was to use it in the context of social media, I would tell them a hashtag is a citation, but it's, it's how you choose to see it. So for me, it's like, I wanna use hip hop as far as reference our people is to inform or to elevate our level of critical thinking about the world around us. That's what, for me, that's what it's about. It's like, how do I raise your ability to critically think with what you already know? Sounds like you got so, a nonprofit in here. We're gonna get there. Somewhere um, down the road. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get there. Right now, I'm, you know, I'm working on my 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 dissertation, promoting this book. That's that's where my that's where the time is. But definitely, definitely, that definitely is. I'll say this: one part of my vision is I do want to own my own wellness center. So that's 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 a big part of it too. Definitely a big part of it. Well, I I said I would get back to this question about what you said earlier about brunch. So it's been interesting. <laughs> Me and my wife have been in Atlanta. We've been, you know, biking around during this lockdown and then mm -hmm. non-lockdown we're doing right now. We've been people at day parties, at the restaurant, everything. Like, and I'm like, do you not realize that like there's a deadly virus still going on right now? Seeing now people protesting and everything during this current situation, I'm like trying to figure out what what's going on. But I think I've gotten to the place where understanding like there's got to be some kind of balance between survival and joy sure. at the same time. How does that fit into what, you know, that framework of like, you know, getting us free, but also surviving or is it just hopelessness? Like, are they just hopeless? You know what? When certain questions are asked, I know some people may look for all or nothing, but I function the idea of gray because I think, and even then there's gray in that. To answer your question, I think it's all the above. I think it depends on the person and what matters the most to them. It's just like, for example, it's equivalent to when somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm gonna go on, a, I'm gonna go on the, a detox. And they detox for that period of time. And then they may go back to eating certain things that were unhealthy for them. And then their frame of reference is, well, it's all in balance. Same behavior. This is on just on a, a much higher level. I think it's a, privilege, it's a privileged position to say to yourself, I'm gonna go and enjoy myself it's not gonna happen to me. I'm gonna use this comedian that's a brother down in Texas. And he said, if you don't practice safe breath, I know you don't practice safe sex. And same thought process. Again, you know, don't get me wrong. Cause I mean, I have different schools of thoughts in my head in reference to this pandemic. But what I will say is like, it goes back to, well, what are you willing to risk for your, your moment in joy? And is that, is that really worth your life? 
if you can catch this and, and end up being your death, you say, well, at least I got to pick it one more last time. If that's your why on your deathbed, when your family's looking down at you, if you can be satisfied with that, then by all means, go out and be happy. Who are we to judge anybody's movement? What I want with us is just be okay with the consequences of your actions. Don't blame nobody else. Be okay. Even the person you catch it from, if that's your fate, don't blame nobody else. So I tell people, like, and I'm not, it's no judgment. If you want to go out and kick it, kick it. But be okay with the consequences that may come. Be okay with it. Be okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, be okay. So I think that there, it should be a balance. I do think people should find ways that where they can still enjoy outside. But you got to find what means the most to you. Because, for example, think about this, brother. We're talking about this. What about for those who have kids who are doing this, who are taking care of family members that are older? It ain't just you. You know, now, if you're single like myself and, you know, you ain't got much to lose, at least immediately, you know, and your family would be concerned if you did die. But it, it's just you. That's one thing. And even still, it's still not. But I'm just saying it's like, don't be wrong. Black folks have in our time have experienced horrendous forms of oppression. But I'm going to be honest with you, it's nothing compared to what our ancestors faced. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're having a hard time in the rest of the world, too, sitting on this. Because we're so privileged. We're used to being able to do some of the things that bring us comfort, even if you ain't got much money. And then you take that away. So I get it. I, I get it. I, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not trying to point finger and say people are just horrible. I understand the pool. But I, I want to speak very honest about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm for anybody making their decisions. But remember, you're just not making the decision for yourself. Yeah. That's good, man. What's evident in this last, like, 40 minutes is that I hear the passion in your opinion. Mm-hmm. And it, sound, it really sounds like the spoken word and speaking your mind is imperative. Like you have to be heard, but you want to be clear about what your opinion is in, in terms of how it lands on people. Yeah. And I don't get the impression that you have a problem saying what you want to say. I get the impression that you speak your mind and you take the risk. And so which really makes this question interesting, which is, what one thing or few things do you fear to say because it might appear to make you seem like less than a man? Okay, that's, that's a really good question. I think it's communicating certain vulnerabilities to women who are, women and men who are not open to hearing it. So it's like certain parts of my humanity. How, I recognize how far social capital and credibility is in any space, but especially our community. It goes a long place. And the reality is, culturally, we have not, developed out of people that we really see our humanity in its fullness. And some of that has to deal with what we've experienced through oppression, but it's also been the choices we've made in spite of that oppression. So for me, that's the struggle. It's like, you all are hearing an authentic me because you've created space for it. You are not judging. I'm not getting the impression that you're judging the things that I'm saying to you. But oftentimes when I go into various different rooms, I do have that apprehension because my experiences, unfortunately, have been that or I've seen the ramifications if I would have said certain things. For example, frame of reference. Again, I went to Howard. When I was a senior in high school, I was part of this program called Gentleman Scholars. And the guy who was hosting me before the actual festivities started, he was taking me around campus. And he told me, he was like, hey, you know, I'm just telling you now, like, you know, when you interact with women, he's like, especially in the classroom, like, watch what you say, watch what opinions you give. Because the women, it was a very, woman-dominated space, and most colleges are, but if you're talking about within the Black college experience, 
it's still predominantly black women. And so if what you say hits them the wrong way, like you could end up messing up your credibility with them. And I always kept that, I always kept in my mind as I got older as a black man, even outside the collegiate experience, I noticed how that same mentality resonated in places of workspace as well. Because the reality is, especially if you work in a space like human services, the majority of the working environments are women. And for me living in Washington, D.C., it's black women. And there's just certain things that I know it's not wise to speak on or even to assert myself a certain way. And I'm just going to be real with you. If you, want, if, if you, if you all are you know, asking, I'm going to be real with you. A big part of emasculation is not just from the men. It's from the women. From a heteronormative standpoint, being a man is informed by both parties. Just like femininity is informed by both parties. We try to make it separate, but it's not. It takes a village to raise a child, regardless of their, their sexual identity or orientation. That's what we're missing. And we're missing because unfortunately, our understanding of each other has been rather distorted. And this is what is not always easy to convey because there are different people on the spectrum of this thought that are not necessarily open to hear. Me as a scholar, me as a man, me as a black man, is fighting to be, be able to be okay with the friction that I may encounter in articulating these, these thoughts, whether it be as a public academic or in a, you know, in a forum or, or in, in this type of media outlet or even through my writing, to get to a point where it's well within me, whatever may come based off what I project, based off the thoughts I have on, on our social circumstances. I'm working on it. It's taken me a long time to even get to this point. Process. Oh my process. Oh my God. Because everybody don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just being real. It's some people, they like the idea of like, for example, they like the idea of what being a, a social thought leader, how it looks, the access or resources that it comes with, but the actual thought processes that it comes with. People, a lot of people, that they don't want to hear that. I love our people, but I'll be honest with you, because of what we experience and my dissertation topic kind of touched on this, I hypothesize that our ability to critical think or to stay in a level of critical thinking. It shot the shit. I truly believe that. And I'll be honest with you, from my time to undergrad and now being a part on the other side teaching, I see it. It's like, as black students, not that we're not smart, but like, we slow to want to engage and answer. And mind you, these are, these are spaces full of black women. The fear of being wrong. And I get it. We all struggle with it. Fear of being wrong. That's a good point. Yeah, I appreciate that. Now, I want to, you know, I want to ask one thing that relates to black women a little bit. Yeah, sure. You know, in this current time, we're very upset about George Floyd. Right, right. How do you feel about the lack of outrage with the same kind of state-sponsored murder terror against black women right now? I think it's rather unfortunate. We need to say their names just as loud as we say George Floyd. Both lives are of equal importance. Unfortunately, when you talk about the numbers game and what a, what a black man, from a utilitarian standpoint, when you, you lose a black man, that's fewer numbers. That's fewer numbers. So that the ability to be able to produce other black lives, it gets altered when we lose black men. There's a surplus number of black women in reference to us. Not to say they're any less valuable, but from a number standpoint, that is more significant because it's fewer of us. I think from a social political standpoint, again, they're, they're both just as important and we need to make sure that we advocate for our sisters that die just as much as brothers do. Now, I've heard conflicting, conflicting uh, research. I've heard a couple years ago, I heard that black women get killed or harassed in record, uh, record numbers that, that either rival black men or is more. I don't know if that's true or not, but I have heard, heard that rhetoric. I've, I've, I've heard that. 
I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but I also recognize the power of what gets televised or what gets recorded and what doesn't get recorded. So with that being said, definitely, that's definitely a strong possibility, especially if you consider the context of like how many sisters have died because of sex work. So you, again, you, you got to really, got to really unpack this thing. You got to really see it. You can't look at it surface value now. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's so funny to me. People want to be understood, but they don't want to go past the, the very surfaces to be understood. And it's, it's very, it's very peculiar to me. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And, and none of the problems that black people face are surface issues or any human being for that matter. But we show like the surface. Yeah. We show like the surface. We want to stay there. And that's an interesting question because I, you know, I can, I can speak for myself how in the past I often didn't want to go back to the surface, which is usually is either vulnerability mm-hmm. or I don't want to be exposed in, mm-hmm. in various ways. And this episode is, you know, is about, is about going deeper. And I, I want to just ask this, and this is kind of a future question, and you can answer this in light of the kind of the coronavirus as well, if you want to, but like, for you, what does the world look like for you to be free? What does it mean for Khalil to be truly free? Where we hold each other accountable outside of what we present physically, what our physical presentation is, or what our social political values are automatically. We base each other based, based off of like what it is to have character and integrity and knowing responsibility is like, Accountability doesn't get mitigated based off what your gender orientation is or your sexual orientation is or what your religious affiliation is. It just boils down to like, what was the right thing to do? And then also, even when people commit wrongdoing, how do we create a system that actually rehabilitates a human being so when they get out, they're better? And how we no longer stigmatize an individual for making a wrong decision in their life. We're not capitalizing off the person making a horrible mistake. We're allowing them to re-enter in a world and giving them the opportunity to actually be productive. That's what it's about. If that world could exist, it'd be perfect. It's perfect as, as the idea of perfect is. Where we don't base each other off material things, but recognize that a person with a heartbeat is worth any material thing. And that's a hard thing to practice because at the end of the day, we all have associated values to certain things. Easier said than done. I appreciate that because you didn't give an answer about your own individual freedom, but it was a collective response, which I can appreciate. Yeah, it's not just about me. Yep, that's right, that's right. In this difficult time that we're all in, and especially black people and black men, are there any mental health needs or like therapy and counseling that that you look for or do like that support you in this time? Well, you know, technically I'm still struggling graduate <laughs> student. I am getting ready to be a therapist for an organization within Washington, D.C. And so I will be providing therapy to children primarily um, at a certain school. My own mental health practices have been around the services that Morgan State has offered through the Counseling Center. And I've been going to the same therapist for the past two and a half years, I think. And, you know, we've been developing a really, really good therapeutic relationship. That's the primary. The other primary is my physical health. Outside of, like, physical health, you know, helping your physical and physiology, it also impacts your, uh, your mental health as well. Just simply off the fact that it helps you re- release endorphins in your body and it reduces the cortisol and stress. But then there's also a spiritual component to the exercise practice that I have as well, considering that it's, it's Bikram yoga. 
I don't know if you brothers have taken Bikram yoga, but it's at a very hot space. And the temperature ranges between 105 and 110 degrees. And so, brother, when you talk about we lack discipline, here's the thing. When you're in a hot space having to do difficult positions, similar to life, you can't run from that. You can't run from that. So I'm forced to deal with the thoughts that I may have been suppressing throughout my daily tasks or outings. And I'm forced to deal with, you know, those demons that may be affecting my practice. So that's a part of it, too. Uh, I think prayer, me being a Christian and, and, and believing in the idea of prayer, looking inward and asking God to, to lead me, I think that's a part of it. Relaxing is a part of it. Laughing with friends. I do love to talk, so dialoguing is a part of it. It's a whole gamut of things. Me writing, me writing as a as a as a scholar, but more so as an artist, because you, you you picked up on the idea of me writing poetry, but like hip hop too. Like that's been a part of it. In this past semester, I went back to open mics and started and started rapping again. That's been a part of it because I recognize, like especially for you, and talk about black men. That's you know, music has been one of the few out- outlets that we've been allowed to express who we are with limited with somewhat limited consequence so like it's, it's a combination of things i think and i think like giving the language around our self-care is just as important as doing it although we haven't been always a people of structuring things some things are necessary to structure because it, it demands a level of reverence and intent so we do have to and, I, and i'll say this as black people we're not going to go into automatic tradition forms of therapy we got to get some type of mental health consultation have to especially black men in this time the thing is, traditionally, Black men have not been taught to value their emotions. I talk about this in the book that I write. I touch on it. And so in order for us to not only cope with the situation, we have to, we have to first actively awaken the idea of what it's like for us to be in tune with our emotions. And not only us to be in tune and come to grips with them, and then we also have to challenge other people around us to be in tune with them. We ain't never done that before because that's not what's been valued. I appreciate that. No problem. Yeah, no, no, no. I was going to say that's part of the reason we ended up doing this show. And we share a therapist because we're trying to get past the layers and the facade and, you know, the toxic masculinity and all of that stuff to the most authentic. Right. And we're going to wrap it up with this, but I, I'm really curious about this book of yours. And I know you can't, I, 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 well, I don't know. I don't know how much you can tell, but we would love to hear about what you're working on want to give us like a short synopsis and, and we, we will look forward to checking it out as soon as it comes out. We'll it's already out. Sure. Okay. It's already out. Let's uh, talk about it then. The name of the book is Stereotypes of the Black Male, Changing the Narrative for Misunderstood Black Males One Story at a Time. And so this is a, this is a co-authored book. Um, I'm one of the authors. And this book is a collection of narratives of different Black men and their experience of being misunderstood as Black men. And so we all touch on different things. One deals with how he was misunderstood and misrepresented in his professional life as a black man. Another one talks about how he happened to be disabled and coupled with him being a black man and being disabled, what that meant for him. Now, specifically, and there are other brothers and authors that you would have to read, but I'll speak about with me, I talked about what it was like to have internal struggles with expressing yourself and dealing with your emotions in a world that doesn't care about your emotions. That's it. That's what I am, am touching on with this and this, this first narrative. And I plan on going more in depth in that in the next thing that I write. But that's what this, for my part in it, that's what I touched on. I can appreciate that because I, I think that that's, I'll assume that that equates to a, another level of freedom too. 
That's right. And liberation for you and your personhood. And when we can go deep like that, we can see better, see clearer, and, and live more fully and more holistic. Yeah, absolutely. It's like earlier we talked about hip hop, you know, and uh, for years there was a line that stuck in my head. You know, me being from Texas, I, I listen to UGK a lot. Pimp C had, they had a song called Highlight. Pimp C started it off. And he was like, I'm tired of living fucked up. I'm tired of living bad. I'm tired of my grandmama asking me when you gonna go to church, Chad. He talked about, later on he says about me living up to this image that she wanted me, you know, but the streets are calling me. And every week I gotta flip a key. And so he even, you know, him as an artist, I related with him so much because he talked about the intersections of life. I'm in the street life, but I was raised in the church. That's the Southern experience. That is the Southern experience at its core for a lot of us. Whether we you dabbled in or not, like you're still close enough to street life where you at least have to be aware of it. So like trying to express the nuances of your humanity have been hard when you've been boxed to only be one thing. Or some people, and you've been, you've been taught like, this is what's going to work. Everything else you're gonna have to do something with. Like for example, I used the clips of Fences with Denzel Washington to illustrate he was a man unfulfilled based off the dreams that he experienced. And, you know, he used that the woman that he had an affair with as a form of escape. That's a very selfish thing. But for a black man that was growing up in that time, what other form of self-care did he have? A lot of people don't want to hear that. Our sisters don't want to hear that because it goes against this idea of what it is to be faithful. I get that. But you got to understand the symptomology in order to find the cure. Even if it does offend you, you got to understand the symptomology. So that's what it's about. This book, this conversation, it's about us explaining who we are so the parts that we, we, we need to change can change and they're heard adequately and they can be. We come from parents who grew up in a time where it wasn't even some talking. You had the church that you could just moan your emotions. We are putting to words what their moans were. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a tough process. I appreciate that. I hope this was as valuable for you as it was for us. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's a two-way, you know. And I think, it, I, I don't know, Seku, like, it's always difficult in these conversations because we want to like go back and forth, which is like, but we want to like let you give a chance to talk, you know, explain yourself, you know? Yeah. But that's a, the most difficult thing. Like, that, I love the dialogue. It, it was very important for me and I, and I, and it was very, it was very impactful. You all asked the right questions too. I appreciate y'all's intuitiveness and, and malleability just as much as, as the questions that you asked. That definitely helped the interview be what it was. Well, we appreciate you, Brother Khalil. Absolutely. Hold down the DMV hard. I will. I will. Yeah, hold it down. This is Let Me Introduce Myself. We are pulling back the layers of black men. And today we had Khalil on the air talking his truth, speaking from his heart. And we want to just send our love to you, your family, uh, your community. We are bigging you up, praying you up out there as you teach the next generation how to be as authentic as possible because that's the real work, brother. So thank you. How are you using your anger? It is totally valid to be angry with how these United States treats black people. But how are you using that anger? What discipline are you taking to make change? What are you willing to give up to save a life? Khalil, we appreciate your poignant, timely, and necessary provocations. It is also helpful to understand more about what built you into who you are today. We definitely noticed your deep love for hip-hop and poetry. It's amazing how you're using 
that passion to not only teach your students about social work, but also to elevate their critical thinking skills. We hope that all of our listeners take a look at your book, Stereotypes of the Black Male, Changing the Narrative for the Time. Thank you, Khalil. This has been another episode of Let Me Introduce Myself. We can't wait to have you back for the next episode.